Well, today we're going to share a meal together after this service. And if that's news to some of you, I hope that's really good news. Some of you may have even been saying, what am I going to do for lunch today? I have nothing in the house and I don't really want to go out somewhere. And, you know, especially after that whole Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's run, uh, we're, we're all a little overfed, honestly, at this point. But we've got a good meal for you today. There's chicken of two kinds. There's going to be fried and there's going to be baked. So those of you who made New Year's resolutions to like leave all the really good food behind, you can, you can have the baked. Um, and then there's other fixins. That's what we would say in the South, fixins to go with it. And uh, it, will be, it will be a really good time together. More than the food, though, the, the best part of this is people. And as has been the case for thousands of years, people share meals together because they value those who come to the meal. Sometimes you share a meal in celebration of a special event, don't you? Uh, wedding receptions begin to come to mind. It's a really special day, and so we're going to have a big feast in celebration of this moment. Or maybe it's an anniversary. Maybe it's a birthday. Maybe it's a retirement party, or maybe there's some celebration because you've been promoted at work, but it's, it's not uncommon to use food as a means of expressing our delight in an occasion and also our delight and joy in the people that we're sharing the meal with. Sometimes we just sit down to a meal because we really love one another. And that's really what's at the heart of our family meal today after this particular service. Have you ever thought about some of the stories in the Bible, though, that show God himself sitting down to eat with people? There aren't a lot of them, but they're sprinkled throughout the scriptures, and some of them come at really significant moments. There's one recorded in the second book of the Bible, Exodus, where Moses records the remarkable event in which he and his brother Aaron, who's the first high priest in Israel, and then Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, are present, and 70 elders, uh, Exodus 24 tells us. And this is right in that, in that moment where God has been giving his law, and then Moses has, to, ha- has affirmed the terms of the covenant with the people, and it's come through sacrifice, and he's actually taken blood from a sacrificial animal and sprinkled some of it on the altar, and then actually sprinkled some of it on the people. And obviously, he couldn't get it on you know, all million and a half or however many people were there. Powerful symbols, though. And at the end of that ratification, uh, the ratifying of the covenant, God calls these particular men, representatives of Israel, to come up on the mountain. And Exodus 24, verses 9, 10, and 11 tell us that those men sat down and ate and drank in the presence of God and beheld his glory quite a remarkable account. If you read all the way to the end of the Bible, one of the highlights of the revelation of Jesus Christ as recorded by the Apostle John is the marriage supper of the Lamb, where Jesus spreads a banquet table for all of his redeemed people, people from every tribe and tongue and family and nation, people from every age and generation assembled there. What kind of a table must that be? What kind of a spread must that be? And he calls people into this table fellowship, and it's a celebration, the greatest banquet ever, ever given. Well, these would just be some of the examples of God himself sharing a meal with people 
who honestly deserved his judgment and condemnation, but people who received something, just like we've been singing all morning long. My sins are many, his mercy is more. My sin merits his judgment and condemnation, but he gives grace, he forgives, he restores, he redeems, he reconciles, all kinds of words that come to mind. Now, last Sunday, Matt preached a great message from Mark's gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you were not here, you need to listen to it. If you haven't been able to listen to sermons yet, go to our website. Uh, there's a drop-down uh, option for you, and, and typically we get all the sermons there. Every once in a while, some little funny thing happens, but our intent is week by week. That's just something you can file away and know. And if you haven't listened to that message, you really need to, because that first portion of Mark 2 where Jesus demonstrates he has not only the power to heal a paralytic, he has the authority to forgive a man's sins. That is tied in very uh, specifically and vitally to what we're going to look at today. Now, it may not be apparent as we first read through this, but the question we need to be asking is how does the forgiveness that God grants to sinful people like us, how does that actually affect his relationship with us? I wonder if you struggle sometimes like I do to truly believe that your sins are fully forgiven. Now, I believe it because God says it so, but sometimes I, I have to wonder, how does he feel about me? What does he think about me? How can we be sure that the sins are not only forgiven, but that God just likes you. You ever feel like that? Like, I know he's forgiven me, but man, I, I messed up so badly that there's no way he can actually like me at this moment. Well, it's passages like these that demonstrate his remarkable nature. Some of you may even wonder, how can I be sure that Jesus really wants me to follow him? That he wants me to be in a personal relationship with him? Because when he says things, as he will in this passage to a, uh, an outcast named Levi, follow me, there's a word there for all of us. And he's not saying, follow me, but keep your distance. He's not saying, follow me and do the best you can on your own. But he's actually calling us into a very close and deeply personal, intimate relationship with him. Mark is making a point in his gospel, this particular portion, that this Jesus, who is the holy God, not only has the power to forgive our sins, but the desire to draw near to us, even though we are sinners. So if your Bibles aren't open yet to Mark 2, go ahead and turn there or find it, pull it up on your screen, whatever resource you're using, or if you say, I don't have the Bible on my phone and I didn't bring a copy, then we have some in those racks underneath the seats. You may have to look down a few seats, uh, but we would love for everybody to have a copy of the New Testament open before them this morning. Mark 2, verse 13, he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, 
Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray together. Father, as we open this word, this holy, living word, this powerful word, a God-breathed word as you describe it, we ask that you would open our hearts to receive it, that you would illuminate our minds to understand it, and that you would empower our wills to live it. Protect us from our own prejudices that cloud our thinking. Protect us from the adversary who loves to steal away the seed of the word as it is cast upon our hearts, sown into our souls. Change us, great God, through this word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, a couple of really important things for you to think through. I talked a moment ago about sharing meals together. That's a picture from warmer days. A park not too far from here. Some of you were there and some of you are recognizing, oh, that's me. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That was one of our great Sunday picnics. And uh, those days will come again. Aren't you excited as I am that the days are actually lengthening now? I love fall. But then somewhere about mid-fall, I start realizing, you know what? The sun's going down sooner and sooner. Darkness is descending. Winter's upon us. Oh, give me spring. Well, when we turn the corner at, uh, you know, that that great moment, December 21st, typically, um, where the days start to lengthen again, I start thinking about moments like this. And and we're going to stay inside for the meal today, um, which is a good thing. But it's going to result in in really great stuff, great conversation. Some of you are going to meet others here that you haven't really talked to yet, and you'll stay at the table maybe a little longer than you might have because you're going to make some connections and things. But but these meals are really important, and and I want to make it as personal as possible with that little image right here at the outset because Jesus does something that nobody would have expected him to do in that culture. We read this particular portion again, and after he says, follow me, and and Levi rises and follows him, then look at verse 15, as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And that little term, reclining, is, is more of a Middle Eastern tradition. We typically sit at the table and pull ourselves up. Uh, you know, to the, the plate and utensils and have that all in a in place that's comfortable. But had we grown up in that day and age, we would have been very comfortable actually lying down and, and feet would be away from the table, but your hands and, and face would be right there at the food. It seems foreign to us, but this is actually uh, a sign of friendship and intimacy. And here's Jesus, who's God come in flesh, reclining with tax collectors and sinners. 
Now, that's going to set the stage for something really remarkable, but here's point number one that I want you to take out of this study this morning. First of all, Jesus is calling the outsiders to follow him. He's calling the outsiders to follow him. What kind of people has Jesus called to this particular point? Well, so far, we've seen him call Peter and Andrew, uh, James and John, who are fishermen, common workers, uh, People weren't like really impressed with these men necessarily. There's no evidence that they had outstanding uh, you know, public power and reputation. They're just ordinary guys out there working the family business. But now you see something that really is quite astonishing. The Bible says that Jesus called Levi, a man who was sitting at the tax booth. He's a tax collector. Now let me read to you some historical uh, background information that will kind of give you an idea of why I would say or why anyone would say that Levi was an outsider. One Bible scholar writes, Levi would be a Jewish tax official in the service of Herod Antipas, so the the Roman ruler who was in charge in that particular region. Such officials were detested everywhere and were classed with the vilest of men. The practice of leasing the customs duty of a district at a fixed sum encouraged gross oppression by tax officers anxious to secure as large a profit as possible. When a Jew entered the customs service, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He was disqualified as a judge or a witness in a court session, and he was excommunicated from the synagogue. And in the eyes of the community, his disgrace extended to his family. One author writes that it may be that that contact with Levi was actually more offensive than contact with a leper since a leper's condition was not chosen, whereas a tax collector's was. And we already saw in chapter 1 Jesus' interaction with the leper and talked through some of the background and history of that dread disease, didn't we? So you can imagine how this stirred the the community waters a little bit. I wonder how it might have even stirred Peter and Andrew and James and John, fishermen in that same region who may have actually paid those exorbitant taxes to this very man. The Bible doesn't tell us. There's no historical record to indicate whether that was so or not, but you can't help but think that they, as the newly called followers of Jesus, are stunned and amazed that he walks up to this man and says to him, as he had said to them, follow me. How's that going to work out? I hope I'm not overstating it. It might be like Jesus calling the President of the United States and the newly elected Speaker of the House, saying, I want you two with me. Follow me. And this is not a small matter. Jesus calls Levi and says, follow me. Now, this individual calling to follow Jesus has to do, first of all, with abiding fellowship. We've seen this before, so I just I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I want to review it and make sure you understand the nature of this call because it actually, it actually does have application for each one of us. Abiding fellowship. Jesus is calling Levi into a personal relationship. 
Now, there are components of that, and the first would be simply that he is, he's saying to Levi, I want you to come follow me and learn as a scholar from a student. But there's also more to it as we are beginning to see more clearly and more clearly through Matthew's gospel that he is calling, or Mark's gospel, that he is calling this man to experience the spiritual component of following him, and that is salvation, chiefly the forgiveness of his sins and the transformation of his life as he becomes a true disciple, a true follower. It's important for us to know this because when Jesus calls any of us to follow him, it is a different kind of call than what the rabbis of the day, the scribes in particular, would have been, would have been calling or extending to other people. Theirs was simply more of, let me teach you, be my student. It had, it had nothing to do with an intimate relationship that would result in a transformed life. Jesus calls Levi, and amazingly, he responds. He rose and followed him. He, he, this really is an astonishing moment. When you, as a tax collector, kind of secured your own market share, you were set for life. Now, lay aside for a moment the fact that what he did was unethical in the big picture. Sure, it was sanctioned by Rome, and as part of the culture, people were just kind of used to this extortion. I don't think that's too strong a term. But Levi hears the call of Jesus and drops it all and never goes back to it. That would be like someone here hearing the call of Jesus to follow him and leaving a really well-paying job. I'm not talking a job that just kind of gets the bills taken care of and puts food on the table and gas in the gas tank and, you know, allows you maybe once or twice a year to take a little excursion or vacation and not break the bank. I'm talking like this is a really wealthy, powerful man. And the story unfolds here, and you can see the other accounts in other gospels. He just drops it and chooses Jesus over those tax collecting tables. What does, this, what does this tell us about the value and treasure that really is in Jesus? And what does it say about a person who has the opportunity to follow Jesus yet says, nope, rather have my business profits, rather have the things I'm familiar with, it's not just Levi who responds in an astonishing way, but if you read verse 15, many are described as following him. You know, if you've never taken time to consider what is so compelling about Jesus Christ that people like Levi and Peter and Andrew and James and John and actually thousands and millions of others through the ages, what's so compelling about Jesus that would cause all of these people to follow him, you need to consider that. And God has brought some of you into a moment just like this because he wants you to follow him. 
and you've been giving your life to stuff, maybe it's material possessions, you've been giving your life to a career path that would lead to some kind of success or maybe security that you would, that, that you say, if I could just have that, my life would be complete. And the reality is you're not created for that stuff. You're not created for career paths. You're not created for an earthly security, which actually is false security. You're created for Jesus. And here, the the story takes another significant turn for us. Is Jesus speaking to you, saying, follow me? And will you? If that's Jesus out on point... Are you already among those who are following right behind him? Or are you a disinterested third party? Or maybe even a hostile third party? Well, the story goes on. He not only calls outsiders to follow, he eats with them. Look at verse 15 again. As he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, several things about this, and I've already hinted and alluded to some of these, but, but first of all, by eating with sinners, Jesus does three things that I want you to know. First, he violates the community conventions. Every community has its conventions, and I don't mean those formal assemblies where we rent a big space and say, hey, it's, it's the convention. We have friends who are in the outdoor retail business, and up until last year, every year they came to the outdoor retailers convention that was hosted in Salt Lake City, and then a whole bunch of people decided that it should move to Denver. And so our friends who were first really excited that we were moving to Salt Lake City so they could make visits and you know, we can enjoy all that became really disappointed. I'm not talking about that kind of convention. I'm actually referring uh, to those community rules or expectations and let me give you some real basic ones you know in our culture we take turns speaking typically and some of you are working hard with children right now trying to teach them don't interrupt you know let mommy finish let daddy finish let your brother finish let your sister finish and maybe some of you kids are working with your parents saying let the child finish and then no we take turns we raise our hands when we want to be acknowledged we line up. I violated one unintentionally at Costco yesterday. You know how everybody gets in, in, starts to find the lines when it's really crowded. It's just kind of this mass of shopping carts and people up there, and, and you're all kind of jockeying for a position but looking around. And, and there was a little gap that opened up, and I thought that one family was over there just kind of talking through some things, and so I just moved in there, and then I suddenly realized, oh, I think they were in line. And so I turned around and spoke to them. They were very gracious because I had fewer things in my cart than they had in their two carts that were heaped up. They said, you go ahead. I I felt guilty. Not that I had sinned, but I had violated one of the community conventions. We line up and we stay in line, and we don't cut in line. It's very bad. I had never heard this term before until I was actually looking through some things this week that uh, some people, uh, we, we all practice this, what some people call civil inattention. Do you know what that is, civil inattention? It means we don't stare at one another. 
So we'll be in it. That, this is another thing that you do when you're in line at a place like Costco or somewhere. You, you don't like make eye contact with the people who are next to you without saying something. No, it's civil inattention. You act as if they're not there, that you don't really hear their conversation, even though you love hearing those things sometimes, don't you, right? Civil inattention. What happens, though, when you live in a community that has not only developed its, its conventions, but ties the, the individual spirituality so closely to what you do and don't do, what you say and don't say, what you eat and don't eat, who you eat with and who you don't eat with, ties it all to your spirituality and commitment to God. Oh, it can become a really ugly community. So when I say that Jesus violates the community conventions, it's not simply that he's going, you know what, I don't feel like lining up or raising my hand or acting like you're not there anymore. No, he's actually going after some of these community conventions that have been tied to love for God, piety. And by eating with sinners, he just picked a fight with some of the religious leaders. There were all kinds of restrictions related to food, and it's in this particular section of Mark's gospel, it's not only this story, but there's one coming about fasting, and we're going to also see that on the Sabbath, Jesus does things that, that stir the pot, including picking corn with his disciples and eating it, and I mean, he's just going after these community conventions. Part of Jesus' mission is to demonstrate that the salvation he is offering really is by grace alone. No Jew in his day could earn his or her way to God by eating certain foods and abstaining from others. And you can't do it today. No one in that day and no one in this day earns salvation by ceremonial washings whether it be before a meal, as the Jews would wash their hands in special ways. You don't earn your salvation by eating with certain people and not eating with other people. And in an effort to be spiritually pure, the scribes and Pharisees had actually moved beyond God's Old Testament laws that talked about what foods you should eat and what you should not, how you should eat and, and prepare yourself so as not to be spiritually defiled. And they had developed their own traditions which had become so burdensome and impossible for people to practice. And because your ordinary people couldn't maintain all of this, these, these echelons of spirituality began to develop. And so you had people at the top of the, the pile who were the really spiritual ones, and then a whole lot of people kind of struggling in the middle. And then you had people like Levi, or Matthew as he's also known in the list of the apostles, who, who not only weren't doing the right stuff, but were doing wrong stuff. Sinners! I mean, these are lawbreakers. But these are the very people that Jesus says, let's eat. So he violates the community conventions. The second thing he does is to jeopardize his credibility. He's a rabbi. And, and it's already been recorded in Mark's gospel, remember, that he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. So they've got to pay attention to him because stuff's happening. When this man opens his mouth to teach, people are responding in ways that, 
They're just not responding at the synagogues when those scribes and rabbis are teaching. But they tied their credibility so closely to their law-keeping that for Jesus to share a table with someone who was recognized as a, uh, as a sinner just like totally destroyed his credibility in their eyes. But if you're Levi, or if you're one of Levi's friends who's, who was invited to this meal, what's happening to the credibility of this teacher named Jesus? You're buying even more of what he's selling, aren't you? Because you're saying he not only teaches with authority that compels me to follow him, he's living out something very different here from what I see in the typical rabbi or scribe or Pharisee. Here's the third thing, and most importantly, he actually reveals his nature. As God come in flesh, Jesus is showing us something about the very nature of the God we cannot see with these eyes. And what he reveals actually encourages people who know that, as we again sang in that chorus of Just As I Am, the broken ones, and, and it compels us to come. The sick ones compelled to come and be healed. Sorrowing ones compelled to come and be comforted. Sitting down with sinners who deserve condemnation and judgment but are now receiving hospitality from the God-man is astonishing. And it is the visible demonstration of the grace and mercy he offers when he forgives us for our sins. And this answers, I think, definitively those questions we all wrestle with. I know God forgives me, but does he like me? And the answer is he forgives you so that he can develop that relationship with you, so that he can show you he likes you and loves you and longs to be in personal relationship with you. Who wants to be in a religion where God is distant and impersonal? But Jesus came into the world in part to say, I want you. Be my friend. And isn't it beautiful that he's not asking Levi and his friends to clean up themselves before they come to him. He comes, as, just as he's been doing through the Gospel of Mark, in order to teach forgiveness and do it. In order to teach a transformed life and then lead them through it. One author writes, this meal takes its place very naturally with the two preceding sections of the gospel. As a sovereign demonstration of the forgiveness of sins, the meal was an extension of the grace of God and an anticipation of the consummation when Messiah will sit down with sinners in the kingdom of God, marriage supper of the Lamb. So Jesus not only calls outsiders to follow him, he eats with them as a sign, we're friends. Now, look at verses 16 and 17. We need to go a little deeper here. I've touched on this already, but he also is scandalizing the self-righteous. Now, here's the big question. In verse 16, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Scribes of the Pharisees, they want to know because this is, this is a violation of the community conventions that they have tied to their spirituality. It's unclear whether or not they think Jesus 
should be eating with them as the religious leaders. You know, that might make sense a little bit. Hey, you're a rabbi. We're experts in the law. We have a lot in common with respect to Old Testament law and the teaching of it. But it doesn't indicate that they're offended that he didn't eat with them. But certainly, we're all in agreement that they don't think he should be eating with tax collectors and sinners. Another Bible commentary commentator writes, Jesus scandalizes those who define the gospel in terms of pure moral reformation and character formation of our day. And this is an important thing, and whether you are a follower of Jesus presently or you're thinking about it and considering it, Jesus, through the gospel, is not simply calling us to a kind of of self-reformation. He's actually calling you to be transformed by His gracious work in you. Yes, your obedience matters, but not so that you gain acceptance and and favor from God. Obedience is the response of our hearts as we have received complete forgiveness, as we have been justified by faith alone. Yes, He wants me to obey His laws of love. Yes, He wants me and you to walk in righteousness and holiness, but He's not asking you to do it so that you can keep your your standing, your grade A status in heaven. The scribes don't get that. For them, Jesus has defiled Himself, and these sinners should clean up their act, and Jesus should stop eating with them, and they should all obey the law, and when they've all agreed that we're good and righteous, then maybe we could talk about having a meal together. But look at what Jesus says. Here's His explanation. The words are there on the screen before you. He uses a common saying to answer the objection of the scribes, and and you can find similar uh, statements of this. It's almost a little bit of a parable, but he says, those who are well have no need of of a physician, but those who are sick. Some of you have been ill recently, and you're really glad there are doctors and nurses and medical experts and specialists who have studied and practiced and and fine-tuned their skills so they know what to do with you when you say, I don't feel well. You're really happy when your kid who doesn't feel well just says, my tummy hurts, and they can't tell you any more than that. Years ago, our daughter Kate became ill and um, stomach, there was stomach stuff going around, and, and she just kept saying, my, my tummy hurts, my tummy hurts, but then it got real specific, and she said, I hurt right here, but it was higher, the here was higher than where your appendix typically is, and so we, we went to the doctor, and he was an outstanding um, pediatrician, and he, it was so neat to watch him talk to her, because I, I don't remember, she was five, six Kristen should be here to, to tell me. Dads don't remember little important details like that. But he was not persuaded that it was just a stomach thing, and so he did some tests, and sure enough, her appendix, her appendix, appendix sat higher uh, than the, the normal appendix, and it was, it was ready to go. And um, thankfully, she was spared, you know, really ugly infection, ruptured appendix and all of that. And it came out, well, praise God for physicians. And Jesus is making a powerful point to say, I know 
who these people are, and I know all about their lives. I'm here with them because they need me to be with them. And when he goes on to say, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, he's not actually acknowledging that there are two classifications of people in the world, and some need help and some don't. He's acknowledging that these individuals, these scribes of the Pharisees, have created these two false categories of righteous and unrighteous, healthy, spiritually speaking, and sick, spiritually speaking. They think that they're righteous and healthy. Jesus would say, the whole world is sick and in need of me. That's why I've come. But you know what? Until you're persuaded you're sick, you're not making an appointment to see the doctor, are you? Some of you are like my dear mother, who's now with the Lord. She would jokingly say, you know, every time I go to see the doctor, I get sick. So I'm not going to go see the doctor. And we would say, Mom, that's crazy. And she would laugh because she knew it's crazy. Do the scribes of the Pharisees need Jesus as much as Levi and his friends? The answer is yes. Jesus would just as quickly and happily sit down for a meal with those scribes and Pharisees as he is with Levi, his buddies, and other sinners. The difference is they don't acknowledge that they are as vile and corrupted in their self-righteousness as Levi is in his extortion and sinful business practices. This is one of those moments where Jesus is actually calling the religious ones to stand in solidarity with the very ones they're condemning. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In the Apostle Paul's letter to Rome, he quotes a number of Old Testament passages and makes a particular point in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Have you ever considered that you are part of the all who have sinned? Some of us have grown up in communities where those conventions that I spoke of earlier were tied so tightly and even fiercely to our religious standing, that it's hard for us to separate the the way we live from our spirituality. And, And because that all gets complicated and confusing, we're in this perpetual state of uncertainty with how does God feel? What does He think about me? Where do I stand with Him? And you know what begins to clarify all of that? When as a first step of faith, you acknowledge before Him, I am sinful in a way that I can't remedy. I'm sinful in a way that all of my obedience from this point forward won't make up for the sinfulness, not just the sinful acts that I've done, but the sinfulness in my soul. The sinfulness within me that continues to produce these sinful acts. I'm a desperate sinner. And what we're seeing is that when people who know they're sinful, who know they're broken by sin, who know they're 
deserving of God's judgment and condemnation, when, when they just humble themselves and stand before Jesus and say, this is who I am, please help, he does. He forgives. And then beyond that, he says, follow me. Come into close relationship with me. Let me teach you. Let me transform you by this relationship I want with you. And you know, if you grew up in a system that doesn't really have a, a, a place for that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, no doubt you've just felt this tremendous pressure and responsibility all your life to, to make God happy, keep the rules, got to keep my religious community happy, got to make sure that I'm not like stepping out of line because I don't want to be ostracized, I don't want to be an outsider. Who wants to be an outlier? but you're never really sure where you stand with the community or with God, are you? That's why you need Jesus. That's why all of us need Jesus. As we think this through here in conclusion, I wanna ask you first of all, as you think back through this story, who do you most closely identify with? Just think through the main characters here. You've got Levi, who's a tax collector, and then others, they're not named there, but other tax collectors. You've got sinners. He doesn't name Peter and Andrew, James and John, but they're there. So there are some followers. You've got the scribes of the Pharisees. Very religious, but clearly not where Jesus is. As I think that through, there's a little, bit, a little bit of me reflected in all of those. Because there's a little bit of Pharisee in me. There's a lot of Pharisee in me. That's more concerned about what you think. Will you like me for who I am? Will you approve of my sermon this morning? You know, there's, there's like my self-righteous tank hopes to be filled up with some really good compliments before I leave today. Isn't that terrible? And now you're really in a pickle because if some of you are like, you know, I would have said to you, hey, thanks for that message, but now I can't say anything. I leave that between you and God. I'm just telling you, there's Pharisee in me that, that wants your affirmation and approval sometimes more than I want God's. There's also a lot of ugly sin that's just been resonant in my soul through the years and it's produced really dark stuff. In some ways, I, I want to say I relate more to Levi and his buddies than anybody else. But you know what I can also say? I've, I've started to follow Jesus like Peter and Andrew and James and John. And I'm so excited to see what Jesus will do next, not only as I read through the scriptures, and I know these stories pretty well, but I'm not expert in them where I've got it all memorized and filed away. I'm also excited to see what Jesus is going to do next just in this, in this walk of life that We're living together. Who do you relate to? And is it not apparent that everybody in this needs Jesus as he is and needs to get as close to him as possible? So again, we come full circle now. When Jesus says, follow me, he's talking to you. Are you? Are you really following him? say, how do we respond to this? Well, it could be repentance. It could be praise. 
We sang earlier, we're going to close our service today, and maybe this will make these words a little more meaningful, but what, what a wonder and marvel it is when we were singing a, a new hymn, His Mercy is More, but think through this text. What love could remember no, long, no wrongs we have done? And that little turn of phrase is, what kind of love is this that God would forgive us and say, I'm not going to recall your sins anymore? What kind of love is that? Then he goes, the author goes on, omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins there are many, his mercy is more. So as we sing that, sing from that sense of awe and wonder that Jesus forgives our sins and calls us to follow Him, to know Him, to be in this intimate and personal relationship with Him. So, so I would say, make sure you're following Him, praise Him for this powerful truth, and then here's a third point of application that comes to my mind, share it, tell others. That's apparently what Matthew, or Levi, as he's called in this particular mass, uh, in this passage, had done. And if you compare it with the other Gospels, there's evidence that Matthew is the one who hosted this, this banquet and said to all his friends, you got to come. you got to come to table with Jesus. All of us can do that. Just tell other people what you are finding and experiencing in Jesus. Will you bow your heads with me, please, and pray over this text and our response to it at this point? Father, as we see the Lord Jesus Christ in action, as we hear His words, we really are amazed. Some of our amazement would come from that place in our souls that's a lot more like the scribes of the Pharisees than others. Jesus scandalizes our sensibilities in some ways because we feel like surely my obedience matters for my salvation. Surely my righteousness, my law keeping makes a difference for my standing with God and yet Jesus says the standing is not about those things. Seeing Jesus share a meal, even reclining in friendship. It's just a sense of he's at peace and he's relaxed and he's causing others at that meal just to rest and enjoy themselves. Oh, we, we can't even fathom having that kind of personal, intimate relationship, and yet that's exactly what Jesus calls us into. Oh, help us to respond in faith now. And I pray for those here right now who are just struggling with a personal relationship with God, even the thought of it. Oh, Lord God, draw them in. Lord Jesus, speak to them. Follow me. And as we follow you, use us to draw many others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.